Great to see each of you here today. I uh, just want to thank, like we thanked just a moment ago, thank Kendra for sharing just a moment ago. I'm so thankful for the team uh, that works here on discipleship, along with all of our staff. I know they just uh, do such a great job, and so I appreciate what she shared, and good to see students back from camp. And so Blythe looks like he got a little bit of sleep this week, and so, uh, so we're excited to have you guys back. They got a chance to go this week and, uh, and hear great preaching all week in Caswell, so this morning... This is the best you got. I'm sorry. This is all you get. So great to have you guys back and uh, good to see you along with each one of you here this morning. We're going to be in the book of Philippians in just a moment. Philippians chapter 1 as we're continuing our series and looking uh, at the book of Philippians. I want to invite you just to go ahead and turn to Philippians 1.27. We'll be reading in just a moment. Calling this morning Humility in Practice, the Rescue and the Result. If you're a note taker this morning and you'd like to have a title, uh, that's what you can go with today. But Philippians chapter 1, we're going to come to verse 27. We're going to begin reading there. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we celebrate a prison-shaking Savior. Thank you, Lord, that we are no longer slaves to fear when we know Jesus. And so, Lord, would you speak as only you can today through your word? Would your Holy Spirit challenge our hearts and lives? Would you remind us of the gospel? And would you remind us of he who went before us? We thank you in his name, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. We ask this. Amen. I think one of the things that I will probably never do, but I like to imagine what it would be like, is hang gliding. Hang gliding sounds like a lot of fun as long as you can stick the landing. I'm just a little nervous about that landing, so I doubt I'll ever get a chance to actually, or, or take the chance to actually try it. But a man named Robert, uh, or excuse me, Ronald Pinkerton tells a story about in the 1980s when he was hang gliding, 
jumping off the side of a cliff with, if you've seen a hang glider like this one, it's almost like a glorified kite, and you are jumping into what you hope is a good gust of air and then sailing around and making a safe landing, hopefully, eventually. But you never know exactly where the air currents are going to be pushing and how they're going to be going. Even if you've got a decent idea, wind and air is obviously something that you can't see, uh, and so you're having some amount of faith to go hang gliding at all. And so Ronald Pinkerton describes when he jumped off the side of a cliff and began to hang glide and uh, found himself all of a sudden caught up in a gust of air that took him to what his gauge read was 4,000 feet in a hang glider. So as he looked down and everything looked really small, just, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know, that just laid out there. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. You've got this sort of, you know, far above everything else. As he was that high up, he all of a sudden realized that not only was he, had he been brought to 4,000 feet, but immediately began to plummet under a downdraft that then caught him up and began to send him straight down. And he looked at his gauge, and his gauge began to read 3,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 1,000 feet. At the point when he got to about 300 feet and he said those trees began to look like spears that were pointed upward at him, he looked over and just off of his right wing, there was a little red-tailed hawk that was right there alongside of him and it was getting hit with the same downdraft that he was. And he was plummeting, and the hawk was plummeting, and he wondered, what in the world are we going to do? He was going over all of his training and what he'd been told, and everything he tried wasn't working, when all of a sudden that hawk went off of his wing and began to fly somewhere else. In his mind, he lo- and as he looked over with his eyes, he saw that that red-tailed hawk had begun to go downwind, which he'd been trained not to do. And he said, well, that, I don't know if I should, you know, what am I going to do? All of a sudden, 300 feet became 200 feet. And he had something in his mind all of a sudden that said, follow the hawk. Sure enough, he began to follow that hawk and go against all of his natural instincts and his training. And he headed downwind right behind the hawk. And it wasn't very long after that that he describes at 100 feet, suddenly the hawk gained altitude. And for a split second, I seemed to be motionless in space and a warm surge of air started pushing the glider upward. I was stunned. Nothing I knew as a pilot could explain this phenomenon, but it was true. I was rising. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of plummeting, in wanting to be able to go higher, he looked and he saw an animal that's innate instincts told it to do something different than his training, and he decided to do something illogical, and that seemed to be to go lower in order to be raised higher. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he speaks to them on much the same topic of humility to say that for you and I to fight against our own instincts, to seek to elevate ourselves through some means in some way, one of the ways our flesh wants to war against us the most is to keep us from humility. But as James said, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. The Christian life is a paradox. If you want to live, you got to die. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be exalted, if you want to find success, fulfillment, purpose, life in Christ, the pathway to that is not in seeking to elevate yourself, but instead lowering yourself. And Paul goes on to say that this is the pathway not only that we're called to, but it's the pathway that the Lord Jesus walked on our behalf. And so in unpacking all of that, if you're taking notes this morning, I've got four things for you. And the first thing is this, our lives are a response to what Jesus has done. 
Our lives are a response to what Jesus has done. This is what Paul begins with, as we read just a moment ago in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our lives are a response to what Jesus has done. Paul makes an interesting statement when he says, only let your lives or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that's an interesting statement because what makes the gospel the gospel is that our lives can't be worthy on their own, can they? And so the very gospel, by its very nature, we see that you and I can't live lives that are worthy of the Lord. And so we, we, uh, the, the power of the gospel is that Christ has done on our behalf what we could not do for ourselves. And so when Paul is writing, is he simply giving a lofty goal that somehow is unattainable? Is it like in Ephesians chapter 5 where he says to husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? And there's not a husband in here this morning, especially if his wife's sitting next to him and willing to poke him, that would say, yes, I've perfectly done that and I've lived that out. Is there any higher bar to have to jump than to say, be like the Lord Jesus in him leaving heaven and coming to earth and offering his life as a sacrifice for many? Be a husband in that way. Is Paul's goal too lofty? I think the point that Paul is trying to make is to live our lives worthy or in response to the gospel that we've received and the gospel that we've believed in, that the gospel makes a change in our hearts and lives, that our lives are a response looking backward to what Jesus has done. So we're called to live in the reality and the remembrance of what he's done. And interestingly enough, Paul doesn't talk about do-it-yourself Christianity in the next few moments. Now, we live in a country, thankfully, where a lot of us are, are do-it-yourself type people, right? That's why Home Depot and Lowe's Hardware exists. That's why some of you, when something breaks at your house, you don't call somebody. You go on YouTube and you say, well, I'm sure I can do that. I can fix that. I, it can't be that hard. We're a, we're a raise ourselves up you know, kind of nation sort of people. But if we're not careful, the way that we think about our faith will be missing a very important component if we only think of the vertical. For some Christians, when they believe or when they think about their relationship with Jesus Christ, all they think about is their own moral behavior, their own obedience, their own righteousness, their own faithfulness to the Lord, and it's a vertical relationship. Me and the Lord, me and the Lord, me and the Lord. If we're not careful, we will miss another very important component that Paul speaks about here, which is the horizontal. God's calling for me among the people of faith. That it's not just me and him, me and him, me and him. No, the Lord's called us to a life of faith in community together. And so when Paul talks about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, he doesn't list off some of the things that we might automatically think of. He begins to talk about unity among the people of God. That I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so when Paul describes living a life worthy of the gospel, he describes a communal experience together in faith. That for you and I, it's not just about you and I. It's not just about us and the Lord. 
but it's about how collectively God wants to do more when a community of faith than simply a bunch of individuals going their own paths, their own directions, with their own purpose. But God's plan for using His church in common spirit, common mind, common purpose. And so Paul breaks this down in that our life is a response to what Jesus has done. And he continues to develop this theme. The second thing I'd say to you today is this, with belief in Jesus comes suffering. Be encouraged. With belief in Jesus comes suffering. If we're going to break it down a little bit too long, I'd say be encouraged. We're all in this together. That's essentially the point that Paul makes. That's too long of a point to get you, you know, full credit in seminary if you're going to write that many words out, but it's the best I've got for you this morning. With belief in Jesus comes suffering, but be encouraged. We're all in this together. Paul goes on and he says in verse 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's been granted to you. That's been gifted to you. There was a movie that was very popular in the early 90s, I remember as a kid watching, and John Candy, who some of you know that name, plays the role of a bobsled instructor who is going to round up a group of men to go to uh, bobsled in the Winter Olympics, but they are from the Caribbean island of Jamaica. And so as they are no longer able to be, a, uh, to be sprinters like they were hoping, some of them didn't make the cut, they found out they could possibly make the Winter Olympics, but they had no idea what bobsledding was, they really had no idea of what the temperatures were like in that area of the world, but all these people descended on a community center to be able to hear about how they could possibly go to the Olympics. And so all of a sudden you see the picture there, John Candy is speaking to this group and the room is just packed full. And he turns on a film strip and he begins to show them for the first time what a bobsled race looks like. Y'all ever seen these things? I I like sledding, but I can't imagine really doing what those guys do. You get in this tube with about four guys and you go rocketing down this icy roller coaster of a path where you have to steer in order to stay on the track. And so John Candy intentionally brings a film strip of all the bobsled crashes that he can find. And so sure enough, all of a sudden, there begins to show videos of bobsleds careening off the sides of these tracks, and inevitably, you can feel the room just not with them. All of a sudden, when the lights come on, there's four guys left. And I don't know if we've shown this picture yet, but it's these four guys. Out of all the room, they were the only ones that were willing to stay once they found out how dangerous bobsledding was. And so Paul writes in a similar fashion to the church to say, remember the fact that not only have you been called to life in Christ, freedom, and all the things that we sang about this morning, that we're no longer slaves of fear, that we're children of God, and yet at the same time, part of walking through a life of faith is facing not only the good days, but the difficult days, not only the wonderful things, but the suffering. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You know, you're not alone. If you're walking through something tough today, part of the benefit of a church is realizing that all around this room, we we could spend all morning listing out difficult things that people might be walking through. It's not simply suffering as we would think persecution for our faith. There may be some element of that. 
But in large, in large sense, it's, it's realizing that life with Jesus still includes walking through things that are difficult. We don't walk through them alone. Christ is with us. But even in the midst of suffering, we find the hope of what it means to know Him and to see not only that Jesus has called us to this, but as Paul continues, we find that Jesus has walked this path before. So the third thing I'd say today, because of Jesus, humbly stand together. Because of Jesus, humbly stand together. Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Years ago, there was an uh, 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 organization in Denver, Colorado, that for a price would take a picture that you would send in and a description that you would write to make a custom-made doll for perhaps your child or adolescent, and it was called the My Twin Doll. So if you send in a picture of yourself, perhaps show what kind of outfits you usually wear, description of how long your hair is and you know, what color eyes you have and this and that, and you send all that, sure enough, in a short amount of time, five to six weeks, they would mail you your very own personal doll of yourself so that your child could curl up at night with the person that they love the most themselves. That says something about human nature, I think, in that. We're people who, if we're not careful, humility can be something that we lay aside. But Paul says that because of Jesus, we can humbly stand together. That humility can be what we lean towards. If you have got a marker you can place in Philippians chapter 2, I would invite you to turn backwards to the psalm, uh, the Psalms. We'll look at Psalm number 25 this morning, just a few verses there. Psalm chapter 25, as David wrote this, we come to verse 8 where we begin just reading three verses. This is what David writes in Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Even in suffering... All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. And so who does the Lord lead? The humble. Leads the humble in what is right, and He teaches the humble His way. Good and upright is the Lord. As you turn back to Philippians, Paul, continuing this theme of humility, describes in verse 3 that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves, that other people are more important than we are. Tim Keller, who was a pastor, passed away several months ago, several of you familiar with his name, author and, and uh, wonderful author and pastor, 
wrote this, and I remember reading, he said, you know, a, a couple in marriage that are, that are getting married together, the best thing they could ever say to each other would be to come to one another and say, I promise to make my own selfishness the main uh, focus and the, and the main enemy of myself and our marriage. I will recognize that the greatest challenge to our marriage is my own selfishness, and I'm going to focus on rooting out and taking care of my own selfishness. He said, a couple that comes together in that way uh, has a great start. That usually our own selfishness, our own desires in wrong directions uh, can lead us in, in pathways opposite of where the Lord would lead us. We live in a world that says, hey, you've got to get all you can and get it now and, 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 and do it the way you want to and, you know, it's, it's up to you and the Bible calls us in a very different direction. Humble yourself. Seek the good of others. Seek not only your, selfish, not only your own selfish ambition, but seek instead to have others more significant than yourselves. And so what does it look like for us to look around and to hope and to want others to know Jesus in a greater way? What does it look like to want to consider others as, a, as better, as greater, as more important in that sense than ourselves? I think it's a powerful way that God uses the love of people to do work that Simply information, even biblical information, won't accomplish on its own. God desires to use not only the truth of what He has given to us, He wants to use it lived out in the lives of people who love one another well. And that's the greatest program and the greatest ministry that a church can ever have, people who love one another. We don't need to simply be caught up in our own smugness or our own somehow uh, pride in some sense. All of that is what Jesus wants to wage war on against us. R.C. Sproul said one, uh, some years ago, Christians have nothing to be smug about. We're not righteous people trying to correct the unrighteous. As one preacher said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The chief difference between the believer and unbeliever is forgiveness. None of us in here this morning are somehow more worthy in the sight of the Lord through our own uh, efforts, our own gains. The difference maker for each one of us is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ at work in our own hearts and lives is not only going to draw us into a relationship with the Lord where it's me and Him, me and Him, me and Him, me and Him. No, it's going to be how do you want to use me for the sake of your kingdom, your purposes, and your people. And the way that that road starts is that He must increase and I must decrease. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And so the Bible goes on here, the Apostle Paul, having the same mind, having the same love that from the internal to the external that we are focused in the same direction. Now that doesn't mean we all have the exact same pathway. God's called each one of us in this room to different places, different purposes, different missions, but even in the midst of each of our individual lives and callings and missions, we are on one collective mission. Have you ever seen a mosaic? You know those old artworks of the ancient world? They're stones of different colors that are put in different patterns and designs, and if you were to zoom in and look at them really close up, you'd think, well, it's just colored stone, no big deal. But as you zoom out, all of a sudden you realize all those individual stones put together in a certain arrangement have formed one beautiful picture. 
And they're still unearthing those mosaics from the ancient world that have stood the test of time. In the church of Jesus Christ, what stands the test of time is individuals called in the way that the Lord's leading them, but those individuals forming one collective purpose with one mind, one heart, one love, and that love is Jesus and where He's leading us. So our call as believers is to place ourselves behind uh, the calling of the Lord Jesus. My translation here, the ESV, if you're using that this morning, uh, says, uh, let's see, in verse 2, having the same love, being in full accord. Now, I'm only old enough to think of an accord as a Honda. So if you don't know what that word means, the Greek word that's used here means like-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D, that you are like-souled, that you are so connected in your mission and purpose and love for one another, that it's as if you are, you're connected with souls. We use the word soulmates to describe that one person you love that you've been looking for and you marry hopefully someday. That's not quite the same interpretation, but that sort of same linkage that you're attached not just at the friendship level, but the church of Jesus Christ is attached at the soul level for what they seek to do together on mission in Christ. You know, a church that lives this out puts to death gossip, pettiness, grudges, jealousy, inadequacy, jockeying for position, selfishness, judgmentalism, a host of other things. You know, many of the things that we walk into that are personal difficulties with one another usually come back to our own flaws, our own pride, our own selfishness. Paul says, lay those things aside. And number four, he says this, consider the Lord Jesus and follow His example. Consider the Lord Jesus and follow His example. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Consider the Lord Jesus and follow his example. One thing that I think is really neat in this passage is that many believe verses 6 through 11 are actually an ancient hymn that's made its way into Paul's writing because the language is so poetic. So what you've got here perhaps is something that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote, or even perhaps was an early ancient hymn that was being sung at that time. We don't have any evidence apart from this passage, but the language itself is so poetic and so written like prose that it's not simply just being, being given as another paragraph in what Paul is writing. There's something beautiful about that. Imagine what it'd be like to have uh, music or a hymn that was being sung be, be so perfect in its theology that it would even make it into the pages of Scripture. Perhaps that's what happened. I sometimes wonder if some of the greatest among our songs, our hymns, our, our worship songs will someday be sung in heaven. 
some that are so uh, not because of any effort of man, but just touch on, on the heart of God and the message of the gospel so wonderfully. What, what would it be like in heaven someday to sing with that great chorus, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Now, I don't know if that hymn is good enough to make the cut, but to me, it doesn't get much better than that. You come to other you know, verses, perhaps someday we'll stand together and we'll sing the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down in care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how wondrous and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. So perhaps Paul is writing a hymn that is even being sung or at that time period even chanted in a certain way. There's a, an element here of what's beautifully poetic. And I think that's nice. The reason I take the time to say that is that it's almost like you can't dive deep into the message of what Jesus has done without being moved to song. That only poetry could describe what Paul's about to describe. Consider the Lord Jesus and follow his example. You've got there in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some of you in your translations this morning, it reads, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, which is it? Yes. The language here that's used is quite honestly a both and. Have you ever read in John chapter 1 where John writes, that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not. And then the word is translated two different ways depending on your translation. Because the Greek word means two things. Number one, overcome. And the second, understood. And you say, well, which is it? It's both. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. And the darkness has also not overcome it. And so have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind by which we see Jesus living out what Paul has written. And so this was evident in the Lord Jesus. But guess what? It wasn't only evident in the Lord Jesus. It's now been made available through the power of the cross. It's been made available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's been made available by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life that now you are able and I am able to walk in a pathway where we are stepping in the footsteps of Jesus when we will lay aside self and look to what He has done. Consider the Lord Jesus and follow His example. I remember in seminary sitting in a class one day as one of the professors who was also a pastor said, you know, if you ever need to go to somewhere in Scripture to find about the character of Jesus, there's really four New Testament passages that stand out as theology or doctrine or the character, the nature of Jesus. And those are John 1, Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, and then what we read here in Philippians chapter 2. That we read about not just a, a nice moment in Jesus' life, and Jesus' existence, but we see the very nature of what He's done and what that means about who He is. Verse 6, who, though He was in the form 
The morphe is the Greek word there, where we get our English word metamorphosis. Though he was not only in outward appearance God, but of his very substance. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be seized, a thing to be clung to. Jesus, in, in pre-incarnate eternity with his Father, did not count his mission as something lesser to say, no, I really want to stay here. Some of us in here wouldn't stay at a two-star hotel. Jesus left heaven and went to first century Israel. I don't have to stay here. I don't have to continue to exist where I, I don't, you know, I don't have to walk through human suffering. I don't have to walk through the difficulties that I'm going to face there. Jesus, not willing to, to do that. He, he didn't consider equality remaining with the Father, something to be clung to and held to. No, he didn't do that. But the scripture says, instead, verse 7, he emptied himself. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this word through the years, but to save you a lot of time, the word empty doesn't mean that Jesus laid aside being divine and came to earth to simply be merely human. The message of the church throughout the centuries and the message of Scripture echoes that, is that Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. So Jesus emptied himself of his place. He emptied himself of his position. He even emptied himself in certain ways where later on he would say only the Father knows the day and the time. And the Son has essentially laid that aside. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. One of the greatest marvels of eternity is that the Son of God the perfect one, eternal with the Father, will be wearing human flesh in a glorified body for all time, but that glorified body will bear nail scars in his hands and feet and a spear mark in his side. That he is laid aside once and for all and taken on the likeness of men in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not death in a way where he somehow could have a, an easier way out, but the most difficult death that one could imagine in that day. It's been said that the ancient church or the early church never used the cross as a symbol until everyone who had seen a crucifixion was no longer alive. Early Christian history, you would see the usage of a fish. You would sometimes see other symbols. But the cross was just so painful. And even in the marvel and the wonder of the cross, even as Paul and others wrote in the New Testament, there was this sting of knowing not only would someone die, but die in that way. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So then we come to verse 9, therefore. And that's a weighty therefore. The old Baptist phrase, what is it? Let's see, anytime you come to a therefore, you've got to go backwards to see wherefore that therefore is therefore. I think that's what it is. For this reason, because of this, because of what? Because the Son of God laid aside all that rightfully belonged to Him for our sake and emptied Himself and came and bore sorrows and pain and difficulty that He didn't have to carry, but He did it because He loved us and had a plan of redemption for us because of all of that and His faithfulness, even to death on a cross. 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. You know, from every indication we have in Scripture, we aren't someday going to find some hidden, lofty, intelligent, or super-intelligent name that will be for Jesus, that somehow Jesus was his junior varsity name, and there's going to be some other varsity name that we you know, hold on to over time with him. We're not going to see that. The evidence of Scripture is that the simple name, even though we find in the Old Testament, Yeshua, that he carries here, a common name of the time, but the name that simply means salvation or our God saves because he was going to be the ultimate Yeshua, the name that's above all names, the way that God provided salvation for all of mankind. It's at that name that every knee would bow. It's at that name that's above every other name. So in this, Paul reminds us again of what Jesus has done what that means for us, that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And sometimes when we think through a truth like that, maybe the picture that comes in your mind, I know that I've wrestled with it different times, is sort of two groups of people. And there's a group of people who is glad to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus. And then there's another group that perhaps is forcefully drawn. It, that, uh, I think I've heard it said before that it's almost you know, uh, a kind of punishment, a, a breaking of the knees to send somebody to forcefully have to bow before the Lord Jesus. I don't know that that's the primary nature of what the text is saying. What I do think Paul is driving home is that the inescapable truth of all eternity is that Jesus Christ is the name above every other name. There will be no one, whether they outwardly would say, I don't know that I want to bow my knee, there will be no one who can hold on to the thought that there is another name, that there is another purpose, that there's another mission, that there's another position that somehow can be above Jesus Christ. There will be no one in eternity that can even entertain the thought that there's a name above His. And so for us, Paul circles back to where he started. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ left heaven in glory to wrap himself in injured flesh, to come to the earth to be scorned, despised, and rejected, and to do so with love and forgiveness in his heart for us, so that we who are far from God can come to know Him, and more than know Him, be children of God through what Christ has offered to us. Many have said the reason that there exists a World War II memorial in Washington, D.C. now is because of the fundraising efforts of men like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Much of that on the fruit of a film that came out in the late 90s called Saving Private Ryan that told the story of the D-Day landings and some events that took place later. The movie begins with an older man who is walking through the cemetery there at Normandy, and as he comes to one grave marker, he falls down on his knees, and he begins to be very emotionally troubled. And the film sort of zooms into his eyes to tell the story of what he has experienced and what he's gone through. 
As the movie comes to a close, we're drawn back out again to this man who we come to realize is alive because of the sacrifice of the others who had laid down their life so that he could live. And he begins to weep and he begins to look into his family's eyes and he says, tell me that I lived a life of purpose. Tell me I lived a life that meant something. Tell me I lived a good life. Tell me that that my life had meaning. Because the reason that I'm alive is because those men laid down their life for me. So for us to live our life in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, there is something in that for us to say a recognition as Paul goes on to realize the reason we can walk in humility is because Jesus Christ has walked in humility. The reason that we can have life is because Jesus Christ gave His And so to live our life in a manner worthy isn't simply a checklist to try to live by. It is a reality of emotion to say, Jesus Christ gave everything for me. And no price is too much to walk with him and for him and to go where he leads. Can we pray together? Won't you stand even as we pray now? Father, we thank you for your plan, the plan of Jesus, to lay aside everything, not because we deserved it, but because of your love, your righteousness, your goodness. So Lord, even in these moments now, will you help us where there's suffering? Will you help us to know we're not alone? Lord, for the places where we're at war with our own selves and the places where we want to be selfish, prideful. Lord, would you shine a light on those? Would you help us to choose and to walk in humility, to look to the good of others, to walk with a common purpose and spirit? Father, those are lofty things, but we know that Jesus is a great Savior. Lord, however you'd speak to hearts and lives today, we just ask that you'd lead us where you would. In Jesus' name, amen.